I don't have a lot of time, so I'll get straight to the point. We generally have a reference to rule breakers or disruptors of convention. Nuclear reactions like those in the center of the sun took place throughout the expanding space. The first time I read it, I couldn't decide whether it was genius or gibberish. What has happened to the idea of real education? Who are the people who make history? Welcome to Omnia, the podcast on all things Penn Arts and Sciences. The 62nd lecture series has been a Penn Arts and Sciences tradition since 2003. The faculty lectures take place every Wednesday in September and April on College Green and have covered topics ranging from human history to fractions to fly fishing. In this podcast, you'll hear each of this spring's 60-second lectures. We'll also dig into our archive of over 200 lectures and share a few of our favorites. First, we'll hear from Quayshawn Spencer, the Robert S. Blank Presidential Associate Professor of Philosophy. Spencer is a scholar of the philosophy of science, philosophy of biology, and philosophy of race. He is the co-founder and former chairman of the Board of the Society of Young Black Philosophers and is an editorial board member for three philosophy journals. Spencer answers the question, what is race in the USA, in his talk. What is race in the USA? This is a question that philosophers of race and other race scholars have been debating about for many years. Some say that race is a biological division of people into groups that don't exist, like discrete phenotypic groups. Some say that race is a biological division of people into groups that do exist, like continental ancestry groups. Yet others say that race is not a biological division of people, but a socially constructed division of people into groups that do exist, like socio-political groups. Unfortunately, all of these views are incorrect. For example, if the social constructionists were correct, why is it that geneticists using genomic ancestry alone can predict our census racial self-reports with over 99% accuracy? However, the biological views aren't correct either, because if that were true, how is it that Hispanic Americans would self-report their race with over 50% frequency. The truth is that there is no single thing that race is in the U.S. Rather, race is radically pluralist. Thank you. Joseph Cable, Baird Term Professor of Psychology, studies how people make decisions and the underlying psychological and neural mechanisms of choice. His research employs methods and ideas from social and cognitive neuroscience, experimental economics, and personality psychology. Cable has received grants from the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation, and is the Associate Director of Research of MindCorps at Penn. Here he presents his lecture, Why We Quit. Many of you undoubtedly know about the marshmallow test where children try their hardest to wait for an experimenter's return so that they can receive their desired reward of two marshmallows, but eventually, ultimately, give up and take one marshmallow instead. Why do these children quit? You might think that they quit because they lack self-control, but this assumes that the waiting for a second marshmallow is like waiting for a 60-second lecture to end. If it made sense to start waiting at the beginning, as time passes, you're only getting closer to the end, so why would you quit unless due to some form of personal weakness? But unlike the end of a 60-second lecture, the children in the marshmallow test have no idea when the second marshmallow is coming. 
and in this case, it's more like waiting for a friend to respond to a text. At the beginning, anything is possible. They could be responding immediately. But as the minutes pass, it becomes more likely that you're in for a longer wait than you initially expected. And at some point, that wait may no longer be worth it to you. Understanding why kids in the marshmallow test quit suggests that we might bolster our own pursuits of our own personal second marshmallows by shaping them to be less like waiting for a friend to respond to a text and more like waiting for a 60 second lecture to finally end. Thank you. Sophia Rosenfeld, Walter H. Annenberg Professor of History, specializes in European and American intellectual and cultural history since 1650, the Age of Revolutions, the History of Democracy, and Historical Methods. She's written three books, including Democracy and Truth, A Short History, which was just published in December. Her 60-second lecture is entitled, Truth or Consequences. As everyone knows, truth is in big trouble these days, not least in our politics. From Washington to Facebook, we're inundated with misinformation and disinformation. And what's worse, say pundits, is that we citizens are becoming post-truth, ceasing to care about what's accurate and what's not, only looking to win, a situation with potentially big consequences for our political future. But where it rarely gets asked is this, why does truth matter? to democracy? I'd say there are two key reasons. One is practical. If we can't agree about how things are, we can't begin to talk about how to plan the way forward. If, for example, we have no consensus about whether unemployment is up or down, or what and where asylum seekers at the southern border are fleeing from, we can have no basis on which to consider policy options, not to mention pick among them. But the second reason truth matters to democracy is more abstract, as an aspiration. By this way of thinking, the real advantage of democratic politics lies not in the empirical results it produces. Rather, it's that we can never be certain we've got everything right, and that's okay. We can keep trying. And only if we can imagine moral and epistemic progress, that is, movement away from false propaganda, spin, and unverified belief, and towards a more accurate and consensual view of reality, can we really hope that people will continue to put up with the messy and contentious business that, that's involved in getting anywhere in a democracy? Thank you. In a special Earth Day 60-second lecture, Bethany Wigan, Associate Professor of Germanic Languages and Literatures and Founding Director of the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities, presented her lecture with the help of her students who were in her Fall 2018 course, Liquid Histories and Floating Archives. In 2014, Wigan and her students co-founded the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities to foster interdisciplinary environmental collaboration and scholarship at Penn in Philadelphia and beyond. Together, Wigan and her students presented their lecture, Pedagogy of the Climate Changed, Teaching and Learning with Water. 49 years ago today, on thousands of campuses and parks across the country, 20 million people greeted the spring sun and a new season of environmental reform. Sick of pesticides and air pollution, they celebrated the first Earth Day. One joke went, We have seen the enemy, and he is us. 
Earth Day participants replied, We must reform human relations with the natural world. And we have reformed them. But the joke's on us. Our terraforming has disrupted the Earth's systems. We're changing the ground on which we live. That might feel terrifying. We're an uncharted territory. We're driving other species extinct at a rate not seen in 60 million years. And the last time carbon dioxide was at 412 ppm, it was the Miocene epoch. We're off all human charts. But maybe the right word for how we're feeling isn't terrifying. A word which shares terrestrial origins. Maybe, on our destabilized Earth, the key word for what we're feeling is liquefying. A word that reminds us that more and more of the planet's ice is becoming water. These students, Lucy and Tatagat from Penn and Claire, our Bryn Martyr, leave you with three more keywords, words that help us as we're finding our way toward a pedagogy of the climate change. Justice. Entanglement. Collaboration. As we conclude our presentation of this fall's 60-second lectures, we wanted to share a few more of our favorites from the archive. In 2016, Luke Massac was a doctoral candidate in history and sociology of science and a student at Perlman School of Medicine. He won the 60-second slam that year with his lecture, The Other Opioid Crisis, How We Learn to Ignore Untreated Pain in Poor Countries. You probably know about America's crisis of opioid abuse. But do you know about my friend in Malawi who broke his femur and had no access to adequate pain relief? For millions of cancer patients and trauma victims in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, there are too few opiates. This isn't a money problem. Opiates are cheap. The problem is the fear that even necessary opiate use in poor countries will inevitably lead to abuse. For decades, the United Nations International Narcotics Control Board fueled this fear. The board threatened trade embargoes on nations that increased opiate imports, even for legitimate reasons. The board also insisted that only doctors should prescribe opiates, even in countries where doctors were scarce. Things are starting to change. In 2010, the board agreed that countries with few doctors should allow nurses to prescribe morphine. Still, each year, over 5 million terminal cancer patients die in unnecessary agony. Pain is universal, but its relief is still a function of geography. Thank you. Kathy Pice is the Roy F. and Jeanette P. Nichols Professor of American History at Penn, where she teaches courses on modern American cultural history and the history of American sexuality, women, and gender. She is a member of the affiliated faculty of the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program and the graduate group in the Department of History and Sociology of Science. In 2006, she delivered her lecture, Beyond the Founding Fathers. I am not here to diss the Founding Fathers, not with Benjamin Franklin nearby, watching from pedestals and park benches. Instead, I ask, why are we so obsessed with the Founders, and what does this obsession say about us? Their biography's top bestseller lists, and one recent book asks, playing on a familiar Christian bumper sticker, what would the Founding Fathers do? as if 18th century gentlemen could provide insight into stem cell research, gay marriage, women's rights, and social security reform. All examinations of the past are simultaneously and often unconsciously reflections about the present. The obsession with the founders reflects a yearning for virtue and clarity in a time of moral muddle, political unraveling, and the failure of leadership. If we recall at once, 
that the Founding Fathers wrote slavery into the Constitution, perhaps the greatest political failure of American history. We might turn our attention away from the great men of the past to the history of institutions, political processes, and the impact of culture. Reverence for the Founding Fathers makes it harder for us to ask whether parts of the system they established might be broken and how they might be fixed. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. To view the complete archive of 60-second lectures featuring faculty, students, and alumni, visit the Penn Arts and Sciences Vimeo Library. And to listen to previous episodes of the Omnia Podcast, visit our website or subscribe to the Omnia Podcast by Penn Arts and Sciences on iTunes. Thank you.